Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. As always, it's a a joy and a privilege to turn to God's Word and look at it together. And we're turning again this morning to the book of Haggai, that small, short book, two chapters long, third to last book of the Old Testament in between Zephaniah and Zechariah. Maybe you got a little practice last week and maybe you can turn there more quickly this week. Last week is a brief reminder, we stepped back in history to 520 BC. And we heard Haggai call Israel to repentance, to reorient their priorities. And just as a a brief reminder, we saw that in his providence, God brought the emperor Cyrus, a Persian, to the throne, and he instituted a new empire-wide policy that invited people to return to their homeland and rebuild temples to their local gods. And this is how God had fulfilled his promises to bring his people back to the promised land. And so Israel had returned and enthusiastically began building the temple, but they quickly hit some opposition and they had to stop building. But then they just let the temple lie there. And after 15 years of investing in their personal lives and upgrading their paneled houses, God's house still lay in ruins And so God sent Haggai to challenge them and to call them to repentance and call them to reorganize their priorities, to prioritize his house and his glory over their personal preferences and lives. And in what may seem like something of a rarity, God's people repented and they responded and they built encouraged by God's promise that he would be with them. So that's where we were last week. But As we will discover, the challenges and discouragements for Israel are not over. And so God comes and speaks again to Haggai in a series of statements. And so I'd encourage you, open up Haggai. We're looking at Haggai chapter 2, and we'll read the whole chapter this morning. Follow with me as we read. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, 
and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. And then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people, and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to a wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. And the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms and of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, My servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. You gave it one time through Haggai to the people of Israel in 520 BC, but now you speak again to us by your spirit. And so encourage us this morning, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. There are, I think, few things that are more powerful and few things that are more important in sustaining effort and determination than having hope. If you have hope, you can continue against all odds. But it's difficult to even lift one finger towards an end that you think is impossible. And Winston Churchill was perhaps one of the best examples who knew this fact Because it was largely his ability to communicate hope in victory, even in the face of overwhelming challenges, that enabled Churchill to lead Britain during the early years of World War II. Maybe you remember the history of World War II. You remember those early uh, early years. Bombs were falling and obliterating London. Bombs were falling on the major industrial towns in Britain. Britain was losing in North Africa, losing in France. And Hitler and his Air Force chief, Hermann Goring, 
were expecting surrender any day from Britain. And yet Britain held strong, led by Churchill. Nine months into the blitz on London, with bombs still falling daily nearly, Churchill said to the British people, he said this, I see the damage done by the enemy attacks, but I also see side by side with the devastation and the ruins, a quiet, confident, bright and smiling eyes, beaming with a consciousness of being associated with a cause far higher than any human or personal issue. I see the spirit of an unconquerable people. And of course, it was Britain who conquered, wasn't it? It was Britain who conquered, sustained by hope. And this is how God sustains his people too. And it's the subject of the second chapter of Haggai. Here, Haggai, in the face of discouragement, in the face of doubt, in the face of sin's consequences, the Lord speaks through Haggai, and he sustains Israel's faith, and he sustains Israel's obedience with the hope of coming glory. And if we'll follow through here, there's a lot of details we might not understand right off the bat, but there's a dialogue going on. It's discouragement followed by hope, discouragement followed by hope. That's the pattern of this dialogue. So let's jump in and follow it in detail. Haggai's first message comes in verses 1 through 9. And based on the last verse of chapter 1, we know from the dates that the people have been at work at the temple for about one month, from the sixth month to the seventh month. And during this time, we learn from the book of Ezra that the Persian governor saw the people at work and came to them and challenged them. And he said, who told you you could build this temple? And the people responded, well, Cyrus, the previous emperor, he told us to build. But it's been 15 years and we're not done yet, so we're getting back to work. So search was made in the records and, and It was found to be correct that Cyrus had ordered the temple to be rebuilt. And so the the emperor gave order to the governor of the region to assist Israel in any way possible to rebuild this temple. God cleared the way for the obedience he had ordered. But you can imagine it takes a little while to get a message from Israel to the headquarters in Persia and search to be made and and word to get back. And so most likely in verses 1 through 9, they don't have the answer yet they're still facing the uncertainty of the outcome. And in the midst of that uncertainty, Israel faced other discouragements as well. For many in Israel, as they look at the pile of rubble and the meager foundations of the temple that's been started, they're discouraged because there are some among them who remember the glory of Solomon's temple before it was sacked. They remember what the temple had been and they look at what's in front of them now and it is not inspiring. And so Haggai asks, who's left among you who remembers the temple in its former glory? Look at what's in front of you now. Is it not as nothing in your eyes? And here we have the wrestling of the heart of God's people. God had promised so much. See, Isaiah and Ezekiel had promised this vision of glory, of a great temple with nations streaming into it with their wealth and here's a pile of rubble that's being built on a somewhat meager foundation. Its building seems so insignificant. In fact, Zechariah, who we'll look at next, uses the phrase, the day of small things, to describe what this temple looked like to Israel. 
And so, in the face of the enormity of the task to rebuild a temple and its unimpressive prospects, Israel has to be wondering, is it really worth it? Is it really worth all the effort to build this? But in the face of this discouragement, God gives them two reasons to build. And you see it in verses 4 through 9. He begins by addressing Zerubbabel and Joshua and all the people and telling them to be strong and to work. And the reason he gives them is that he is with them. And God describes his presence then in the coming verses. He says first that he is with them according to the covenant that he made with them when they came out of Egypt. And if you were to flip back to Exodus as, as Israel was standing on, well not on Mount Sinai, next to Mount Sinai, having come out of Egypt and God comes and makes the covenant with them. Part of the covenant that God promised in Exodus 29 as the tabernacle was being built was this. He said, I will dwell among the people of Israel. I will be their God. And so now, as the people rebuild the temple, God comes and he reaffirms his presence with them. And in doing that, he's reiterating his covenant promise with them. He's reiterating, I am honoring my covenant. I am with you. I will dwell with you. And then God adds, my spirit remains in your midst. And one commentator points out that the the grammar for the verb to remain here is one that communicates continual, uninterrupted activity. To remain with continued, uninterrupted activity. That's God's promise with his people. It's this guarantee of God's spirit remaining with them that gives them confidence so that they can obey and build and fear not. And isn't it, in fact, God's presence that has always been the greatest encouragement to God's people to obey in difficult circumstances? Maybe you remember Israel on the verge of the promised land. Here's this great promised land. They're supposed to go in and conquer the nations. And what does God say through Moses? Be strong and courageous, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Or maybe you remember Joshua, who Moses dies, and Joshua has to take over for Moses and lead this conquest. And any of you who have ever been to VBS know this verse well, because we sing it. Joshua 1 verse 9, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever, wherever, wherever you will go. I suppose if I was a little bolder, I would have sung that for you, but uh, I'm not. So you'll just have to imagine the voices of the children singing that. But this is our hope, right? God's presence is with us, and therefore we have hope. It's a promise Israel had, and it's a promise we hear as God's children as well. When Jesus says to us, lo, I am with you always. In the face of our challenges, it's God's presence that is our encouragement and our hope. But then Haggai goes on. Not only does he promise God's presence, but in verses 6 through 9, he gives a second reason for hope. God gives them a glimpse of the end of the story. Now, we have to know, uh, you know, think about why this is so helpful. Because if if you're reading a novel, or if you're watching a movie, or watching a, a, a sporting event, you don't usually want to know the end. At least for me, watching a game when I already know the final score is rather boring. And reading a, reading a novel, if you've ever been reading a story and the book accidentally flips open to the last page and you see a line that ruins the ending, it's like, ah, that ruined the whole thing. 
unless you're one of those people who likes to look at the last page, and that, I, I, that's just cheating. But on the other hand, when you're facing discouragement, knowing the end of how things work out is a source of hope. I mean, can you imagine as a high school senior, if you filled out your college application and wrote your college entrance essays, knowing that you would be accepted in the scholarship you would receive? That would be quite encouraging if you could go into that process knowing that. Or imagine as parents, imagine as parents if you could enter the, the long task of parenting knowing that your child would, would grow up to know and love the Lord and put their faith in Christ. That would encourage you. It would motivate you in your, in your task. And so that's what God is doing as he comes to Israel, facing the prospect of a temple that doesn't match their expectations, wondering whether the glory of God's presence is really in this after all. And God says, yet a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth. You think this house isn't adorned with gold and silver like the last one? Well, why does that matter? All gold and all silver is mine, and I'm going to shake the nations so that the treasure of all the nations shall come in. And we know, if we look at Revelation, that God has continued this promise. He's still holding this promise out to his people. In Revelation 21, God says this when he envisions the new heaven and the new earth when Jesus comes back. And he says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And they will bring into it, this temple of the presence of the Lord God, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of all the nations. The kings will bring their glory into his presence. God is, that's the end of the story, and God is still at work to bring it about. God says, you think this house lacks glory? Well, I am going to fill this house with the glory of my presence. And before I filled it with the glory cloud, but in this temple, I'm going to show up in person, in the bodily presence of Jesus Christ. That's how my glory and my presence is going to show up. And of course, then in the future, the temple still points ahead to that final day when God's glorious presence will dwell fully with his people. You think this temple is still surrounded by enemies and rubble and adversaries and you're still ruled by a foreign power? Well, in this place, God says, I will give peace. That settled and unthreatened joy and contentment in the security of God's goodness. And I will bring it about through the salvation of my Messiah. In other words, If you could boil all this down in one sentence, you could say it this way. Here's Haggai's message to this people. Obey God's call and build. Not because you're creating a temple of great physical glory now. I know that it doesn't look impressive. But this temple is what God calls you to build right now as the next step in his plan of redemption. And that plan ends with climactic glory beyond all your memory or experience. That's what God's doing. And this is what God has for you to do in that process right now. And I think we could pause for a moment and, and we could say by way of application that Haggai emphasizes a truth we all need to remember. That God does not demand that any one of us accomplish incredible, impressive results for him. He asks us to be faithful wherever he's put us. 
That may be in great things, and it may be in small things. I was recently given a biography of a 19th century Scottish preacher. Not a name that I'd ever heard of, probably not a name that any of you have heard of, W.H. Burns. And the biography was written by his son. And his son says that he wanted to write this biography so that people could hear about the quiet and ordinary faithfulness of his father. And in the introduction, the publisher says this, he says, what we have here is the life of an ordinary faithful pastor. He held no prestigious pulpit. He held no important professorship in theology. He founded no institution. He simply labored in relative obscurity, but did so faithfully and with perseverance. And he did have a significant spiritual impact on his congregation. But the publisher concludes this way. He said, we need to be reminded of the beauty and the dignity and the ultimate glory of humble, obscure Christian service. Yes, we need the towering leaders of men like John Calvin and John Knox. However, the great work of the church is ultimately carried forward by those who receive little earthly reward or recognition. And isn't that an encouragement? Isn't that an encouragement for you and I? Maybe at times our life feels like a day of small things. Maybe at times we see no fruit from our efforts in life. Maybe that causes us doubt or discouragement. But if we will be faithful where God has us, we are doing the part that God asks us to play as the next step in his great plan of redemption that ends in climactic glory. So brothers and sisters, wherever God has us, we can work in things small or great, and the hope of what God is doing in his kingdom. While having sustained Israel with hope in the face of one discouragement, the Lord comes again, verses 10 through 23, to deliver two messages on the same day about discouragement and hope. This message comes in the ninth month, so that's about two months down the road from the last message. And we can imagine maybe how Israel might have been thinking. Maybe Israel was really encouraged by this message in verses 1 through 9. They were buoyed by this, this hope. But after two months of building, it's going slowly. The rubble's still around. They still face poor harvests and little money. And maybe that hope that they had two months ago is starting to fade. You know, you and I know how it is, right? We can feel really hopeful one day, and the very next day we're discouraged. Here it is two months later. And God's people are discouraged again. And maybe they're thinking, we returned to Jerusalem from Babylon, and yet things have still been pretty bad ever since. Is there really any blessing to obedience? Because it sure doesn't look like it. And so the Lord speaks again through Haggai, and he starts with this object lesson of the priests. He asked the priest, he says, if I'm carrying something holy in the corner of my garment, which by the way, that was the equivalent to pockets in the old day. If you're going to carry something, you fold up a fold of your garment and carry something. So if I'm carrying something holy and it accidentally comes in contact with something that's not holy, does the holy thing, is the holy thing contagious? Does the holy thing spread its holiness? And the priest answered, no. Holiness is not contagious. It doesn't spread. And then Haggai asks the follow-up question. He says, if I'm unclean, if I touch a dead body and I'm unclean and I touch something else, does that thing then become unclean? And the priests say, yes, yes, uncleanness is contagious. And 
That was true of the ceremonial law. It's the same with our physical cleanliness, isn't it? If you have a a cup of really muddy water and a cup of clean water, and you pour the cup of clean water into the muddy water, it doesn't become pure and drinkable. It's still muddy, maybe just a little bit less so. The cleanness isn't contagious. But if you take the muddy water and you pour it into the clean water, it's all dirty now. The sin is contagious. And that's the point that Haggai is making here obedience, one act of obedience does not cover sin. One act of obedience doesn't cancel out sin so that we're all obedient and holy. But if our life has an issue of unrepentant sin, that is contagious. That does impact our life and how we stand before the Lord. And so Haggai says pointedly, this is the issue with my people. And with this nation, declares the Lord. And then he explains, he says, look, before you started building the temple, things went badly. I struck your crops with blight and mildew. And I did this so that you would return to me. And yet you didn't. And he says, look, just because you came back to Jerusalem, just because you obeyed me and came from Babylon to Jerusalem, that one act of obedience didn't make you all holy because your hearts were still sinful. You still weren't building my temple. You still didn't value my glory. There was sin in your life. And it's because of that act of disobedience, your failure to care about my glory and my house, that you stood before me as unclean and these punishments came upon you. But now, says the Lord, consider from this day onward, since the day of the foundation of the Lord's temple, from this day on, I will bless you. You see the logic of of the Lord's comment here? And I should note that there is a little bit of a debate on how to understand this passage specifically. There's, There's two options. And the question is really this. Is God answering Israel's doubts about their poor situation by explaining that their past disobedience led to these consequences, but their current obedience will lead to blessing? That's one option. In verses 15 to 19, the explanations seem to suggest this. Or, second option, is God speaking to these current temple builders and arguing that even though they've started to build, there's still some disobedience in their hearts, their attitudes, or their actions, such that even though they're building the temple, they still need to repent and obey fully. And verse 14 kind of seems to suggest this, so this is with my people. And so this is the debate between commentators. And, and I, I lean, along with pretty much all of the commentators that uh, I read, towards the first option, that Haggai's point is one of encouragement. Before you built, I blew away your wealth because of your disobedience, but now you have obeyed me. Now you've obeyed my word, and from this day on, I will bless you. That's, that's where I, I lean on this. But I think the principle serves as a reminder that even the act of building the temple won't cover other acts of disobedience. No matter what our situation, and Zechariah is going to make it clear when we get there that even those who began to build had some issues that they needed to repent of. And I think this is such an important principle for Israel, but it's an important principle for you and I, isn't it? Because it's a reminder that coming to church or, or tithing or welcoming one person doesn't cover other sin in our life. All of our obediences can be rendered quite useless spiritually if our hearts do not care about God's glory first. 
Our hearts can be very mixed in their loyalties and their motives, and our lives can be very mixed in our obediences. And God calls us not to let one area of obedience lead us to minimize sin in other areas of our life. Of course, at the same time, we should note that this passage, the conclusion of this, or or the, the, the logical implication of this passage, is not that we have to be utterly perfect. That would be a high demand if this passage was saying, you have to be perfect to stand before me. Rather, this is a realistic call to a life of repentance. It's a call to examine our hearts and to desire holiness and obedience to God. This passage is a call to expect that the life of the Christian will be one of a regular rhythm of repentance, where again and again we hold our hearts before the Lord, we see sin, we hate it, and we turn to God for forgiveness and strength to obey. And it's precisely the hope that comes through the blood of Jesus that enables this life of repentance. Because if there was no hope of forgiveness before the Lord, how could we live this life of regular repentance? Apart from Christ's death on our behalf, our sin would sink us. But because of Christ and in his blood, we have the hope of forgiveness and we have the hope of his spirit to enable us more and more to walk in righteousness. And so it's Jesus Christ who enables and encourages this life, this regular rhythm of repentance. Well, we look then to the last section here, and and if you follow the logic here, Haggai's given us hope in the face of, of disobedience and sin's consequences, but maybe this reminder of sin is sobering in itself. This generation had returned in faith, and yet they missed blessing because of their sin of not building the temple. Now they're building, but what if another sin might undermine their efforts and all God's promises don't come true? That's the the thought process that can be going on here. What if they again lose the promise of God's blessing? And, And so God comes with a final message for Haggai, again on the 24th day of the ninth month. And if the first message on the 24th day of the ninth month announced from this day forth, I will bless you. If it announced the beginning of blessing, the second message announces the full and final blessing, the fulfillment of all God's promises when Jesus comes again. God begins by assuring his people that he will again act in the future. You see it in verse 21. I am about to shake the heavens and the nations. And of course, you and I know in prophecy that God always speaks from the perspective of his timetable. And so when he says, I'm about to, it means that's what's coming. That's what I'm going to do. And for us, it might not seem like it was about to happen. It might seem like there's a few thousand years in between. But God's speaking from his perspective of his plan. And so God's saying, look, are you still vassals of the Persian Empire? Do you still feel like insignificant backwater on the stage of human history? Well, don't worry. God is about to act And he is going to shake the heavens and the earth. And he's going to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. And he's going to destroy the strength of the nations. And on that day, when he shakes the whole earth and destroys the strength of kingdoms, God promises that on the stage of worldwide history, he is going to set up Zerubbabel as his chosen ruler. Now this is the kind of prophecy that can lead us scratching our heads a little bit. Because Zerubbabel was a capable guy, but he died in relative obscurity. He was still a vassal governor under a Persian governor under a Persian emperor. It sure doesn't look like he was 
elevated to God's chosen ruler on the, on the scale of human history. But we have to know some background here because these words are strikingly beautiful. See, Zerubbabel is a descendant of David and is the legal heir to David's throne. And you may remember that God had promised to David in 2 Samuel, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. But the descendants of David had rebelled against God. Judah's kings had disobeyed and fallen into idolatry. And there was a dramatic statement that Jeremiah the prophet made in Jeremiah 22. Through Jeremiah, the Lord had looked at Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and he said this, he said, if you were a signet ring on my right hand, I would tear it off and hand you into the hands of Babylon. And then worse, God said to Jehoiachin, who remember was a descendant of David on the throne, he said, you are going to be childless and none of your offspring shall sit on the throne. Do you hear what that sounds like? That sounds like the promise to David is over. That sounds like David's heir has been, had the ring taken off his finger and he's not going to have any descendants to sit on the throne. It sounds like sin has ended God's promise of blessing through David. But 70 years have passed and Israel is now back in its promised land. And God comes after these 70 years and speaks through Haggai and he speaks to Zerubbabel. And the amazing thing is, is that Zerubbabel was a descendant of David. He was the legal heir to the throne, but he was not descended from Jehoiachin. So the curse on Jehoiachin was fulfilled and yet God's promises were also fulfilled. And God comes to this man, Zerubbabel, and says, I'm choosing you like that signet ring and I'm putting you back on my finger. I'm setting you up because I have chosen you. The signet ring that was cast off has been put back on. The line that appeared to be at an end is back on the throne. See, God's promise to David is still intact. And what God's doing here is he's saying, on the day that I shake the nations, I'm taking your descendant, Zerubbabel, I'm taking you in your line, and I'm going to make him the chosen one who will rule over all the nations. See, this is a promise of hope. God's promises are not at an end, even though they looked like it. In fact, they're actually being worked out and fulfilled through this very generation of Israelites who thought that their day was a day of small things. They thought they weren't building a big temple. They thought they weren't doing anything significant. They thought it looked like God still wasn't with them. And yet in their actions, in their time, in their generation, God is fulfilling his promises. Talk about being sustained by hope. And brothers and sisters, as we end this passage this morning, I think we can say Israel faced the discouragement of a day of small things. They faced discouragement at their own sin and its consequences. They faced discouragement and uncertainty at their vulnerability among the nations. And yet God comes in Haggai to encourage them with hope. And I think each one of us can, can know these same situations. We're discouraged at days of small things. We're discouraged when things haven't gone as we'd envisioned they would. We're discouraged over our own sin and its consequences in our lives. We're discouraged, aren't we, at the uncertainty in our fear and sense of hopelessness in the face of the grand political happenings all around us that we don't know where they're headed and we feel vulnerable. We're discouraged at these things, and yet God has not left us without hope. 
because he gave his word to Israel through Haggai that he was going to set up his king and that hope was coming. And now, from our vantage point, we've seen the down payment delivered on those promises. We've seen that God chose Jesus, who was a descendant of Zerubbabel, and that we've seen him through death and resurrection. We've seen God declare him the victorious king over all. And we've seen God promise to come again in the day of the Lord and to complete this nation-shaking victory and to bring any who puts his faith in Jesus to be with him forever. We too see this promise and we too can be sustained by this hope because just like the people of Israel, our joy and our obedience today can be sustained by the hope of God's promises that are guaranteed in the last day. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we thank you for this message through Haggai the prophet. How we thank you for the way you bring hope in the face of discouragement, for the way you sustain your people and their obedience now by your promise to be with them and your guarantee of the end of all things in glory, in blessing, in peace, and in salvation. And Father, this generation of Israel was discouraged. It looked like God's blessings were over. And yet you came and said no. In your very moments of discouragement, I am fulfilling my promises and working them out to a glory beyond your imagining. And Father, now we've seen Jesus Christ, and yet it's so easy for us to lose sight of him. Would you renew in us this vision of what Christ has accomplished and the glory that's coming? Would you sustain our hope and our joy and our obedience daily as we look to the coming of Jesus Christ? And would you be glorified in us as a result? We pray this in your name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.